Blog Talk Radio. Donaldson of Donaldson Files with another great show tonight. We've got uh, three great guests. Uh, we're waiting for Professor Will Riley to be joining us. But on the line, we have a former police chief from Martinsburg, West Virginia, uh, Murray Richards, and the co host of that great show that follows this show, You and the Law, uh, Chief Virgil Green. And what we're going to do here tonight is, by the way, I'm Tom Donaldson. I'm your host. And uh, just to let you know, Coco Konski is still on our sabbatical, but she did inform me that through the month of October, she's coming back full time. So Coco Konski fans, just to let you know, she's coming back full time next month. Tonight and tomorrow night, it, you're just going to have to just deal with yours truly uh, Tom Donaldson. I am the chairman of America's PAC. I'm a research associate uh, for America's Majority Foundation, author of eight books, including The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism, What Our Response Should Be, a book written in 2017. But if you want a book that details all of the trends, political trends of the past three years going into this election, it's still that book for everybody. So, without any further ado here, uh, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to introduce my two guests, uh, Virgil and Maury, and as soon as uh, we get uh, Will in the line, we'll be getting Will in the line as well, but these two gentlemen have 60 years of police experience between them, so we're talking to two cops who know what they're talking about. And Virgil, why don't you kind of give a quick background of yourself? All right. Well, Tom, glad to get to be on your show again uh, with your listeners. Um, I've been in law enforcement for uh, over uh, 25 years. Uh, 20 of those 20 of those years, I've been uh, police chief in Oklahoma uh, as well as in in Arkansas. Um, so uh, just this past um, couple of months ago, I actually ran for sheriff here. In, here in uh, Oklahoma County, uh, the county I live in, in Oklahoma City, and uh, came up on the short end in the primary, but uh, it was a, another good experience. So, uh, but again, my uh, 20-some years, 25 years uh, in the background of law enforcement, as well as I've had some uh, opportunities uh, to serve in the private sector where I served as the executive director for Mothers Against Drunk Driving for the state of Oklahoma. Um, and so that uh, allowed me to get... Uh, uh, a little bit more knowledge and in, in understanding about uh, nonprofits and how they how they work and and how they serve uh, those individuals who have been uh, impacted by drunk driving. Okay, and uh, Maury Richard, why don't you kind of give people your background? Okay, and uh, first of all, Tom, thanks so much for having me. Um, I started my police career in Chicago, Chicago Police Department, 1991. Um, you know, put in. Uh, about 24 years there, uh, 
you know, you know, worked in, you know, number of, uh, well, a bunch of different uh, districts, almost all on the south side, a lot of very busy districts, probably some that you uh, read about in the papers these days. Um, so I had a, you know, very busy career and um, was fortunate to, you know, I think be part of some innovations there in terms of uh, bike patrol and district-wise bike patrol. Um, you know, the first uh, regional, uh, you know, gang task force, uh, I was co-founder. And uh, after about 24 years, I, I wanted to uh, try something new, and uh, I applied for uh, chief of police in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and in 2015 became chief. Uh, did that for five years. I, I just stepped down in June, and uh, I'm very, very proud of what we did there. I think, you know, a lot of innovative things, knocked down crime, really in, increased, uh, you know, our partnership with the community. Uh, and there was a huge drug problem here. You know, one of the things uh, when I came out here, people said, wow, you know, you know, you know, isn't this a you know, big change from Chicago? And in terms of, you know, gangs and, and violence, yes, it was. But I've never saw the depth of, uh, you know, heroin addiction and the opioid problems I did here. So uh, we made an impact there. I'm proud of what we did. And uh, uh, once again, really appreciate being part of your show. And uh, Chief Green, I noticed you got your own show. So uh, congratulations on that. Maybe I can, uh, you know, you know, sign up. <laughs> I can sign up and get on that one one of these days. Way to go. Well, hey, definitely, sir. We, uh, me, me and my co-host, uh, Chief uh, Keith Humphrey, he's the police chief in, in uh, Little Rock, uh, Arkansas. And so we would definitely be, be honored to have you come on our show and, 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 and join us and you know we have a uh, a good open honest discussion about uh law enforcement topics so you're more than welcome to come on the show we'll definitely connect no, i appreciate it it's always uh, great to talk to the real police yeah all right then also we just uh will riley has now just joined us from uh from kentucky he is the professor at kentucky state university i should say associate professor at kentucky state university the author of of the book Taboo, along with two other books, said, so, Dr. Riley, if you want to go ahead and just give people a brief background of yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor of politics at Kentucky State University. I also do some uh, consulting on the side, everything from security to political election work. I teach some of our criminal justice and some of our political science classes here at KSU. And as you mentioned, I've written uh, three books. One is Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, that does talk about them, about American race relations, um, crime, changes in the world, so on. Hate Crime Hopes, which describes what the title pretty much indicates, these sort of Jesse Smollett-style recent cases. And the $50 million question, which looks at what it is that human beings value, a race, nationality, sex, so on down the line. And I'm always glad to be back on the show. I've done the show generally with you and Coco probably five or six times by this point. Yeah. And I wanted to lay so I do want to kind of put real quick, uh, um, this is under the aspect of just a full disclosure. Uh, for, you, know, doc, you know, Professor Riley has done research for America's Majority Foundation, and, is, and we're presently engaged in one and two other two other research projects that he's finishing up for us, or just starting. Uh, so they want to make that up. So, all right, here's what I want. First of all, number one, uh, real quick, uh, Professor Riley, I understand that the Attorney General, the Kentucky Attorney General, is going to release the transcripts of the grand jury 
uh, testimony. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, Daniel Cameron's announced that he's going to do that. And, I mean, that's in response to a pretty large amount of ground-level demand from activists, uh, ranging from Ben Crump to people that uh, that just work in that sector in Louisville to, quote-unquote, see what actually happened, see what the truth is. That, that's pretty rare that the transcripts of a recently sitting grand jury are released due to public demand, especially if that includes the names of jurors or anything like that. But because of the unusual nature of the case and the amount of media that's been generated and so on, yeah, he is doing that. Okay. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to – normally we take a break at 510, but I'm going to do this a little bit early because here's what I, I, want, I want to get started with is this. You know, the first part of this show, I want to kind of talk about Kenosha, Jacob Blake, as well as Brianna Taylor. And what I really want to talk about is, and I want to kind of get first a, you know, you know, you know, Professor Riley, your view, as well as the chiefs, and one of the one of the chiefs, and I want you guys to talk about if these were your police officers, what would you have expected them to do in both of these cases? You know, what is the standard operating procedure? Uh, and I also want to kind of get into the aspect of intelligence collection. Because obviously somebody put uh, intelligence, you know, what was the intelligence that led them to say Brianna Taylor should be part of this raid? That led to the trade. So I want to kind of get what, from a police chief perspective, the proper rules of engagement. This is Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. On the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. The Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor, discusses issues of race, politics, policing, and justice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect black, brown, and poor people negatively. Listen every listen live every Monday and Thursday from six to eight PM Eastern Daylight Time at blogtalkradio.com, LA slash LA dash bachelor and the rebroadcast every day at eight AM, three PM Eastern Standard Time on bachelornews.airtime.pro. And also don't forget uh, you can listen to this show three AM, ten AM on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Eastern Standard Time. If you live on the Pacific Coast, it'll be 12 midnight and 7 a.m. every day on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay, I'm going to start with you, uh, uh, Chief Green. First, you know, the first question I'm going to ask you: what goes, what kind of intelligence goes into, let's say, making that decision? Here's where we're going to raid, and what would you, and, and how, and I guess, and how would in your view, based on what you know, we're only based on what we know at the moment, uh, they followed procedures that a Virgil Green of a Virgil Green. Go ahead. Well, I'll say this time. I think, you know, 
one of the things, as far as the intelligence, uh, obviously, you know, if there had been uh, any type of transactions that an undercover officer had made at that apartment or uh, somebody else that was associated with, with, with buying drugs from that apartment, that um, that would establish that there was a need to uh, do that type of a of a of a raid on on an apartment, and and yep, you know, at what level of you know were were there any mentions of any weapons being present? How many people were there? So all that information is is collected, and the investigators or the officers who are involved with that uh so typically you know that should go all the way up to to a supervisor to where they pretty well outline that you know this is what is taking place over say the course of several weeks or or several months that would uh give some credibility that hey we know that we're going to find what we're looking for in this apartment and this is who we know lives in this apartment. And so with the situation in in Louisville, um, apparently, you know, they did all of that. They got this no-knock warrant. And uh, what is really interesting about this and, and a lot of unanswered questions is how was it the fact that the person that they – were initially looking for had already been arrested. Now Louisville is a is a you know a large city, but there again, how how are every how is that information being shared with people that are connected with that investigation? And so okay. uh, now we go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, I'm gonna go to uh, uh, Chief Richards. Uh, Again, you know, I'm going to ask the same question because obviously you had a drug issue in Martinsburg. And so the question I would throw back is, you know, what goes into setting up an intelligence of this, you know, of this situation, you know, from your angle? Sure. And I, th- I think uh, Chief Green, you know, did a great job of, you know, laying out the basics of, of a drug investigation and, you know, what uh, the threshold you need to, uh, meet, you know, to, you know, to get a judge to, uh, you know, approve the application for that warrant, um, you know, what the, you know, connection was, you know, I, I realized that the offender, the main offender had already been uh, locked up, um, you know, but, you know, not seeing that warrant or, you know, the uh, affidavit, you know, I don't know what the connection was, so I can't comment on that. Um, you, you know, but one thing, you know, that has really disturbed me about this case is like the total uh, misinformation campaign that's been put out. Um, you know, yeah, it was, you know, uh, granted as a no-knock warrant, which is, is, you know, very rare, you know, in, in my uh, experience, but it was not executed as a no-knock warrant. You know, these officers knocked on the door, announced their office, police, police, uh, a neighbor, upstairs neighbor confirms that, um, and then, you know, getting no answer, they take down the door. And the first thing they encounter is uh, the boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, shooting at him, you know, striking one of the officers. You know, they return fire. And, you know, tragically, uh, Brianna Taylor was hit and died. Um, okay. You know, so. 
you know, and you know those things. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the very essence of this. You know, you once you, you know you get past the the affidavit for the yeah. search warrant, and you know, you know that's been. You know, there were lies, media lies, you know, from the very beginning on this. You know, she was shot in her bed, you know, things like this. They didn't, you know, didn't knock. Uh, all that's untrue. And, you know, from what I gather in listening to uh, uh, Attorney General Cameron, uh, you know, those facts were presented to the grand jury. And that's why there was a determination that the uh, two officers, uh, Cosgrove and Mattingly, at the front door, fired in self-defense. Uh, the third officer, Hankinson, once again, I don't know, you know, the layout of that apartment, but uh, apparently from w- what the grand jury came up with, uh, you know, maybe he didn't have a target, you know, that he had in sight, you know, shooting recklessly, and he gets charged with wanton endangerment. Yeah. Okay, uh, Professor Riley, for, was this a no-knock warrant or not? Because I'm totally confused. I thought it, you know, that the attorney general stated that it was not a no-knock. Yeah, so I come at this more from the legal or the security consulting perspective, whereas the the officers, or rather the chiefs, come at this more from the police perspective. Legally speaking, what happened was that the officers were granted a no-knock warrant, but they didn't execute it as a no-knock warrant, as I understand. If you have a no-knock warrant, that gives you the ability to enter a residence without knocking, but obviously you can knock if you want to, not to be glib about this. Um, There were something like 11 nearby neighbors, and as I understand, two of them who are both African-Americans say they heard the – well, they all say they heard the police knock. Two of them also say they heard the police announce themselves as police. And a horrible irony here is if this had been executed full on as an aggressive no-knock warrant, there very probably wouldn't have been a fatality in this case. Um, What apparently happened is that the officers got to the front door of the residence. This is an internal apartment inside an apartment building. They knock on the door, and Brianna Taylor's boyfriend suspected this was Brianna Taylor's former boyfriend, who as a Kentucky resident was a well-known, pretty large-scale drug dealer in Louisville. And apparently there was some back and forth. I don't know exactly what was said. He may have not believed that this was the police at the door. But he took out his own pistol, and he fired a couple of shots through the door. And as I understand, he struck one of the officers in the leg and almost disabled that guy. So the police then returned fire because they were being shot at. And again, legally speaking, we can talk about internal discipline for the officers or something, but this would be a very, very difficult case to prosecute against the police. I mean, this would be a case where the police were serving a no-knock warrant, um, essentially out of what could be termed politeness. They did, in fact, knock. There are two gainfully employed black witnesses to their knocking. A guy responds who may or may not be involved in the drug game, but who thinks that this is a former boyfriend of his partner, shoots a cop, badly wounds the cop, and the cops shoot back. I mean, that's not a case you could take to trial in the South or anywhere else and come out with a win, in you know, my humble opinion. Um, and the Oh, the, um, the comment by one of the chiefs is correct, by the way. The guy who was – who is getting prosecuted – and by the way, this, again, is sort of weird media spin. I mean, he's getting prosecuted with charges, I believe, a Class C felony. He's going to do some jail time. But um, he was the guy who shot randomly. So he fired, and his bullets hit either another apartment or two other apartments. So even in a situation like this, even if you're returning fire, you can't simply take the firearm and, you know, shoot down the hallway. So that's why he's facing charges. But in general, this was, this was given to the officers as a no-knock warrant, but they apparently did not. They, they pretty much followed police protocol, as I understand. Yeah. All right, now, let me ask a quick question here of the, of the two police chiefs. 
and then and 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 also with you, Professor Riley. You know, should we have no knock warrants? Should they be allowed? And I'll start with you, uh, uh, Chief Green. Well, and you know, Tom, I think it depends upon the intelligence, the circumstances of of that investigation. Uh, if you're dealing with uh, some known individuals who uh, you know there's drugs, you know there may be, uh, you know, a lot of individuals in that residence, uh, and there may be weapons in that residence, especially weapons. Um, and if you can articulate to a judge that, you know, this is why you're requesting that no-knock warrant, because, again, it's, it's, you really have to have a have everything put together for that judge to say, I'm going to grant this, because, again, as has been stated, no-knock warrants are, are kind of rare. Um, and if you're dealing with that level of a person who is involved in the drug trade or in whatever else he may be involved with that, you would want to get a no-knock warrant to where the element of surprise, if you're going to do this at 4.30 in the morning, you're not even going to knock on the door. You're just going to take a ram and you're going to hit that door and you're going to go in and you're going to catch these individuals while they're still in bed before they can even get to their weapons. So, um, again, to me, it has to meet a lot of uh, elements to get a no-knock warrant, uh, but to answer your question, Tom, I think it really has to rise to the level of who is this person, how well known are you to this individual, and uh, do you think uh, that officers uh, would be in jeopardy uh, if they didn't do a no-knock warrant? Okay. Now, let me quick – okay, I'm going to talk to you, uh, uh, Maury, is this uh, – Maybe the, because I know we have in Congress an attempt to eliminate no-knock warrants uh, to outlaw them. Now, it sounds like this is something that's rarely done to begin with, but is that good policy or bad policy? No, no, I, I agree 100% with Chief Green. I think to eliminate it you know, as an option, as a tool, is absolutely ridiculous, Okay. Uh, first of all, we have to once again realize how rare it is used. And in this case, as uh, uh, Professor Riley mentioned, it was granted but not executed that way. Okay, so all the media disinformation, the no-knock warrant, had nothing to do with the way this warrant went down. Okay, so that's the first thing. But uh, Chief Green's absolutely right. Uh, you have a situation where, you know, say uh, there, there are weapons involved, if you knocked and, and uh, you know, you also, you also, let me back up. For every search warrant you do, you do a, like a threat level assessment of what's going on in that apartment. And, you know, say you've got, you know, hardcore, you know, gangbangers, hardcore gangsters um, that you know, you know, are very likely to be shooting. You know, you know, why the hell would you knock on the door and let give them time to set up? You wouldn't do that. Same thing if uh, there's a high likelihood that important evidence will be destroyed. And I'll mention one other thing, you know, you know, we're talking about, you know, the risk level for uh, officers and, you know, civilians involved. But, you know, what if you had a situation where you needed to do a search warrant because you had a, like, like a child kidnapping victim, okay? You know, are you going to knock yeah. on the door, announce to the police, 
you know, let this kidnapper or child molester or murderer, you know, set up and, you know, actually increase the risk to that civilian. You know, so it's ridiculous to have like a knee-jerk reaction, say, hey, we're going to outlaw the stuff when it's used very rarely. And as uh, Chief Green said, it's, you know, it's very scrupulously looked at before it's approved. Uh, Professor Wright, is there anything else that we could add you know, with the two gentlemen, you know, that the two chiefs have put into, you know, that is pertinent to case. And I'm thinking more or less, okay, uh, yeah, was there anything, let's say, Brianna Taylor that would have wanted no knock? I mean, was there fear? Because I guess one of the things I read is that they were surprised the walker was there. That they were, so I'm assuming they were thinking it was just going to be her. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it, that, that's. That's an interesting setup. I mean, first of all, I, I agree with the two chiefs on the basic concept of no-knock warrants. I mean, rare but useful. When I was in uh, high school, or maybe my freshman year of college, an athletic team I was on used to work out to a song by the rappers 50 Cent and Dre, where one of the choruses was, drop the diesel in the battery acid. We throw the heroin in the toilet tank. or we. I mean, it's funny, but you know, we, we take this $100,000 worth of drugs and we get rid of that because we see the police coming and we're running enough of an enterprise that we can afford to take that one loss once every year or two. That's what no knock warrants are designed to get around. If you're serving a warrant on the gangster disciples or the hell's angels or banditos or something like that, you're not going to want to give people a chance to get their guns out and their drugs away. I mean, even in this case, so they didn't just raid one residence this night, by the way, this is, I guess the one side point I want to make. Um, that night in Louisville, they raided four different residences. This guy, I mean, I know some of the people that are involved in defense, uh, nickname in the city of Louisville was Chapo, was selling drugs at a pretty serious level. There were four residences raided. There was a large brick house on, I believe, Muhammad Ali uh, down here in Louisville. There was his individual house, him and his mom. There was Brianna Taylor's apartment, which allegedly, and I tend to think this is true, was being used as the stash house for multiple what are called traps or bandos. And this was sort of the third and smallest or the fourth and smallest of the warrants that were, that were carried out that night. Another thing that the media hasn't been extraordinarily honest about here is the involvement of Ms. Taylor. No one's ever alleged murder or selling drugs herself or anything like that, but her awareness of this business. Um, the Tatum report, a sort of center-right blog run by a former officer, released about 39 pages of these Louisville PD transcripts detailing some of this, where Brianna Taylor would ask questions like, you know, where is, you know, Big Nietzsche tonight? Is he down at the trap, quote-unquote? So her house was named correctly on the warrant as the tertiary or the fourth residence that they were going to go to to look for this drug operation when they were shutting down Chapo uh, in Louisville. Now, the, my final comment, I guess, would be if the cops were confident enough this is the girlfriend, we're going to knock. I mean, there are some questions about whether they needed a no-knock in the first place. But the idea that this is something that's commonly granted or this is a guy who had a few bags of weed, I mean, yeah, I would agree with the police perspective on that from the legal perspective. That's, that's not the case, and that's not something that should be done away with totally, no. Yeah. Okay, this is Tom Donson. Uh, on the Donson <coughs> Files, we got our special guest, uh, uh, Chief Virgil Green. Uh, Chief uh, Maury Richards and Professor Wilfer Riley here discussing policing into the 21st century. Uh, we're going to start asking some of those questions after we get off uh, after this special announcement here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. 
I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. Tom Donaldson uh, with our three special guests. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, get your flu shots. You may not be aware of this, but in particular for younger patients, uh, school-aged children, and younger adults, they're actually more likely to die from the flu than COVID. So get those flu shots, folks, including those on the younger side of the equation. Uh, all right. Now, here's the question. I, I, I'm going to go back to more. You wrote a piece you know, a, a while back, and I want to kind of – I'm going to kind of read the you – know, read what you wrote and then get your impression because there's a couple of points you made. You, know, you start off with the brutal and justified killing of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police officers were met with universal and immediate condemnation from all levels of American law enforcement. Police chief, police professional organization, rank-and-file police officers unanimously announced this disgraceful act. And then you, then you continue, said, no one starting with the police wants bad cops. Police who commit crimes cannot be tolerated, must be held, uh, held accountable. Now, you and I you know, discussed this you know, off the air, and I know I've had this discussion with Chief Green. And, uh, and that is, you know, how hard it is to get rid of bad cops and what do we need to do to make it easier for city officials to do exactly that? And yeah. I'll start with you. No, that's a really important question, Tom. And, uh, you know, I, I know it, uh, even without asking, I know Chief Green's going to agree 100% on this, that, you know, you know, who hates bad cops the most? And that's good cops. Okay, uh, there's no question about that. Um, but I think overall, it, it, it is a difficult thing to do um, in terms of really getting rid of bad cops. You know, I don't want to overgeneralize there because I guess it depends on uh, the city, the situation. Um, but in a, a large city where you have uh, say like a strong police union or either smaller cities where you have uh, very strict civil service rules, uh, it can be difficult. It can take a while. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible. Uh, you know, I've recommended discipline and uh, gotten rid of some bad ones. And I know uh, Chief Green has as well. So it's not impossible. But, you know, I think overall, um, and, uh, you know, I'm a union guy from way back. I was a steelworker, you know, president. Uh, there's a big difference between private industry and public unions. And uh, I think you see the same problem with the teachers union. You know how hard it is to get rid of an incompetent teacher? It takes an act of God. Um, so I would hope that moving forward uh, that there is, you know, some consensus reach between, you know, police chiefs and unions, maybe uh, state legislatures working on civil service rules, uh, you know, to, you know, protect, you know, the due process and rights of uh, all employees and all officers, but also make it a little easier, you know, to get rid of the bad ones. Okay. Uh, 
totally uh, agree. Uh, virtual. Yeah, virtual. Your thoughts. Do you have anything to add to that? Yes. And, and you know, one of the things with the, the police unions and how they – the structure of their contract is with the city and uh, and that the, it really, to a certain degree, kind of limits the police chief from uh, doing some things that he or she may want to do with that particular officer, especially when you have done several things as far as disciplinary actions. Uh, and I, I'll share this, this with you, Tom, and your listeners, that, you know, I had an officer who um, who – was stealing time and uh, it took it, even though we were able, I was able to establish his pattern every, even with his car being located at his residence, the tracking of the, on his vehicle, that uh, it was a civil service uh, type of a situation. And it was left up to the civil service or the council members to uh, terminate that officer. With all that information, they basically said no. So here's an officer that you know is stealing time who's got paid for it, and I could not get rid of that officer. Uh, so even it, it, even in a situation when you got an officer who's stealing time or an officer who has violated somebody's rights or whatever, it is <clears throat> there's a lot of things that go into that. And so, and I think that's why the public has so much distrust, especially in the African-American community, uh, with police because they're saying, well, who is policing you? And how can you police your own self? And so, uh, and, and like the chief said, you know, the good cops don't like the bad cops. But oftentimes and what we're seeing is that the, 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 the FOP and some of the other organizations that represent police officers have such uh, – power or influence or even sometimes even the politics gets involved in it and that police chief or those people in the command staff really know what they want to do but they can't they can't do it and now the public is looking and saying well we're seeing what you're you're seeing the same thing so why can't you do something yeah yeah that's a, that's a good point now, the other aspect i want to come to uh, i want to ask you uh, professor Ryan, because you you kind of tweeted this out today on your term, and you talked about the number of police shootings in general, and you laid out some statistics. You know, do you have those? Yeah. So, kind of talk about it. Like how many people actually, up to this year, for example, have been shot by the police overall, and then break it down by race. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of different levels there. First of all, there aren't an extraordinary number of people that are shot, specifically shot and killed by police officers in the first place. Uh, second, I do think we can get that down even lower, although I think law enforcement's doing a good job. And third, uh, everyone in the discussion so far has mentioned the mainstream sort of center-left media. The presentation of who's getting shot is wildly dishonest. So I actually have this right in front of me. I mean, so far this year, uh, 721 people in 2020 have been shot by police officers. And that's out of about 40 million interactions between Leos, law enforcement officers, and just civilian members of society. So that's a, a little under one per 100,000 interactions, if my math there is correct. Um, 
the issue, what we see with Black Lives Matter, and I'm, I'm a black man myself, obviously. I started off with some initial sympathy toward this perspective. But what we see with BLM is the argument that this is sort of a type of violence that's uniquely targeted at black people. Uh, the civil rights attorney, Benjamin Crump, has a book out called Open Season. It's legalized genocide on colored people. The data really, really don't indicate that that's the case. So if you look at those individuals that were shot by police this year, uh, 287 of them were just non-Hispanic whites. Um, another 180 of them were unknown, and those are also almost all non-Hispanic white. Those are generally coming from the smaller towns where there's a less detailed report coming in from the department. Another 113, if I have this correct, were Hispanics, mostly Caucasian. And then 142 out of about 800 were African-American. So the pool of people that were shot by cops is 19% black. And if you're looking just at the known cases, it's 53, 54% white. Now, whites are 61% of the country. So you can argue whether that small, that 7 or 8% discrepancy is due to residual racism or is due to slightly but definitely higher crime rates in black communities. There's a debate to be had there. But the two arguments that there's a massive slaughter of people by the police, one, and that this is only African-Americans, two, those are – not accurate arguments. And that, that is a result of some of this media presentation that we're seeing. I mean, I think we know how most of the reporters at the Times and the Post are going to vote in this upcoming election. That sometimes shows through. There's also a general dislike of law enforcement, by the way. They don't, they don't give a break to black cops or southern cops or Hispanic cops or any other group of officers that I've ever seen when I'm looking at coverage. The, the one point I did make on Twitter is, okay, when I look at that, I mean, we're only two-thirds of the way through the year. 700, that's not a massive number law enforcement's doing well, but how could you actually get that down? I think this gets into some of the suggestions that we've been talking about. Um, what can you do about the police unions? What can you do about qualified immunity? But there, there's, not any, there's not a great massacre going on. Okay, well, let, let's kind of follow up. Okay, um, let me ask one quick question here because, you know, I know there's been a lot of, you know, I know you quoted these statistics, you know, dealing with, you know, you know, when we put in all the variables, there's not a significant difference as far as police shooting. But certainly there was, I think it was Irving Fryer who basically did a study that, he actually did a couple of so studies. I think one he did a study on shooting police that he found not a significant difference with the variables. But he found a second part to that is a non-lethal, where he found Hispanics and blacks would be more likely to be, you know, a non-lethal. Treatment or uh, treatment, or an example, driving while black. Uh, how much does this play into the distrust uh, of police officers? And I'm going to start with you, Virgil, on this one. Now, now what's your question again, Tom? Well, my question is, I mean, I mean, like I said, we can debate. I mean, one of that. I mean, there was a study done by uh, Professor Riley at Harvard. I mean, actually, he's done a couple, but one of the this is the one that comes. Was interesting to me was he talked about non-lethal as opposed to lethal conflict, but non-lethal, and and he basically said blacks and Hispanics would be more likely to be facing that kind of issues of non-lethal harassment, whatever uh, you want to define that, and how much does that play into the distrust that we see? Well, you know, I I think you know with 
with people that are in the communities of, of minorities in, in marginalized communities, there's this um, sense of, uh, of automatic distrust that they have with the police that kind of goes back to what they've seen happen with their relatives, friends, or whatever. And so there hasn't been this uh, anything put in place where officers have tried to build some type of positive relationship. And so when you talk about using, you know, the non-lethal and just say driving while black uh, concept where, uh, and I always, and I say this to to groups I talk to, you know, when police officers pull over a car at night, they don't know what color that person is inside of that vehicle. Um, And even in the daytime, it's not like you're just really looking to see that, the race of that person. So, uh, yeah, are there times where people are could be targeted? Yes, uh, based upon the, the city you're in. Just like I'm in Oklahoma City, we have several pretty affluent communities, and uh, I, even we have the Oklahoma City Thunder here, Tom. And so, yeah, some of the basketball players they live in a in a predominantly in a neighborhood called Nichols Hills, and it's a really upscale. Um, white community, and so there have been black players who've been pulled over by those, those officers in that city. That's in the city of Oklahoma City. Uh, that's a suburb, and uh, because of the type of vehicle they were driving, and some of the players have have expressed that. So, um, you know, we 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 we've got a long way to go, and I don't think one. Of, let me say this real quick, Tom. I don't think a lot of officers really fully understand. Uh, the the why people feel the way they feel, and so and until Hello? they understand that, then there's going to continue to be we're going to continue to see some of the things that that we're seeing across the country. Okay. All right. The the well, this is Tom Donaldson uh, uh, with the with the uh, Bachelors Radio Network with Donaldson Files. We'll be right back shortly. With an announcement of yet another great program on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You in the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Hey, Tom, are you there? Hey, do you want to hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Maury. Oh, okay. Yeah, cause I, I, I lost you there. I had a call back. Great. Thanks. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, you're, you're on the air. Yeah, this is uh, – oh, welcome back to the uh, Donaldson Files oh, on the Bachelor right. News Radio Network. Uh-huh. And, okay, here's – you know, I, I think, like I said, one of the, that's a good point that you know Chief Green brought up uh, uh, is uh, uh, both uh, 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 Maury and Will. Do you have any extra comments to what he just presented before the break? Uh, yeah, I, I've got a quick kind of sorry, Tom. Um, and I know you talked about the Fryer study, uh, and there's been a number, of course, that you know show that um, you know the you know fatal shootings have no racial bias. In yeah. fact, if there is a bias, it actually 
is in favor of black people, if you want to know the truth, and that's been established. Uh, in terms of the general force, uh, I know the fire came up with some relatively small discrepancies, but uh, I think, you know, there might have been some uh, questions on methodology, you know, how much uh, resistance was involved with the people they were dealing with. But, you know, I just want to say real quick that the things we're talking about, um, the, you know, this whole media myth, this lie of systemic racism, which is not borne out by any facts whatsoever, is like the biggest problem we're facing because, you know, that's being used as an excuse uh, to attack the police, you know, to trash cities, to loot. Uh, because as long as people, you know, can believe this delusional myth, this absolute lie, um, you know, then they feel justified to doing all kinds of illegal things, in, in, including attacking the police. And, you know, unless we stand up and really expose that, we're, we're not going to get to real police reform. You know, we're not going to be able to change things if, you know, we, we don't knock that lie down because if people believe that lie, you're never going to establish trust with those people. Yeah. Okay. Hey, quick, hey, uh, Tom, let, Tom, let me add, let me add something real quick. One of the things sure. that that uh, I've always tried to do uh, as being a police chief is, is control your narrative, uh, whether it's putting out a press release or, or whatever it may be. And I, I don't think a lot of times we're controlling our own narrative, and we're ahead of what's getting ready to happen. And I think if we uh, start doing that and start being more proactive in talking with the public and not letting the news media control that narrative. And so when the media puts things out that may be uh, not have any facts to it, we have already established ourselves in our communities to control the narrative of what we want our, our citizens to hear. So I don't think that's something that we are that we have been really yeah. fortunate enough to do. Especially, you yeah. know, a lot of people say don't talk to the news media; they're your worst enemies. But I've had more success with being straight up front with them and letting me control that narrative instead of them controlling me. Yeah, yeah. I want to a quick question because the, the, you know a lot of times you could di- distinguish between the local media and the national media. And I've always, you know, as in the political world, I'm in the political world, I've always found it easier to talk to the local media folks as opposed to the national, mainly for the reason you just discussed. It's a lot easier because they're covering you, and you probably know these people, some of these reporters face-to-face. You know, that's always yeah, been hey, my thoughts. What? Go ahead. Hey, hey, can I just say, just real quick, and, and virtually you hit it right on the head, uh, you know, not getting your own story out has been, you know, if you look at like some of the huge fiascos, the disasters, you know, Ferguson, you know, it took that police department 22 hours to even get a statement out. You know, by that time it was all over, you know, the media and Black Lives Matter had written their own, but the same thing in in Kenosha, you know, I mean, there was no no facts coming out. And I'll tell you what, that governor, uh, this uh, Tony Evers uh, really, put gasoline on the fire before he knew one fact he's out there saying that, you know, this is another, you know, you know, killing a merciless killing. I mean, it was disgraceful. And, um, you know, so you're not only fighting the media, but you're fighting, you know, some of these woke politicians who will, you know, throw the police under the bus in a, in a heartbeat. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to make a statement. That I want all three of you to kind of comment because when I look at, let's say, you know, I'm going to put this in a, 
kind of a personal sense. You know, my I have a daughter who lives in New York City, and she lives in a community that's predominantly Hispanic. And I can remember when um, you know, she made the point to me one time, you know, a few years ago. He said, you know, that this. He said, Dad, you may not know this, but this was a war zone in the late early nineties, late eighties. It was like a war zone of drug gangs. And if this, and I can tell you right now, at, you know, I have not been to New York this year, but I go about every year. And I can tell you, I felt as safe walking in this community as I did in downtown Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, I mean, New York City became that you know safe of a city that it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. And 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 now today, I've been looking at some of the statistics. You look at, and I'm, I'm not going to just pick on New York. In New York, you've seen a spike. You've seen a spike in Chicago. You've also seen a spike in Minneapolis. And then we got the chaos in Seattle and Portland. And the one thing to me comes into play is that in this little community, you have a twenty. Well, you did at least before the pandemic. A 24-hour diner that has always been, and that could never happen in an area where you literally have violence, where you know parents are afraid to even let their children out, at least they become crossfire and some kind of gang shooting. In other words, as imperfect as that thin blue line is, it is the thin blue line that separates anarchy, chaos. Violence, where a diner either is going to stay open 24 hours and never or never be open in civilization, and I think sometimes as imperfect as police may be, they're that thin blue line versus civilization. And I'll start with you, uh, uh, Professor Riley. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I agree. Like, you know, I'm a stats guy, but I try to keep some of the stuff as basic and coherent as possible. If you have less cops, you're going to have more crime. I mean, I, grew, I was born on the south side of Chicago. I grew up there and on the east side of nearby Aurora, which was also nothing nice at the time, in the mid-'90s. That's a city of about 400,000 people. And I personally saw this. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, going to school, you'd see people get on the trains and start painting graffiti. And after about 6 or 7 o'clock at night, you'd see people go on the trains and have sex. There'd be violent brawls at the restaurant across the street from the apartment I grew up in. We weren't quite deep enough in the hood that there were bullets whizzing by three stories above the ground. But you empirically saw under Mayor Giuliani in New York, under old Mayor Daly in Chicago, uh, Wisner in Aurora, crime declined measurably by 60, 70 percent in response to things like CopStat policing in the mid-1990s. So I think you've got, you've got to talk in, – in life, if you're an actual adult leader, you're more often talking about trade-offs than solutions. So when people say some of this stuff that you hear, like, okay, the police actually shoot more whites, but they're 10% more likely to harass or yell at a Hispanic man, I suspect in my gut that's probably true. That's not good. Law enforcement needs to work on that. Okay. But that's one side of the spectrum. What's going to happen on the other side of the spectrum, if you take some of these idiotic left-wing solutions that are on the table, is not going to be someone feeling insulted. It's going to be thousands of deaths. I mean, between 1963 and 1993, when we put Miranda in place, we put Escobedo in place, we put fruit of the poison tree in place, community policing in place. Murders in the United States went from 9,000 a year to 26,000 a year. This is just a fact. You can search by Googling the annual crime rate. 
that's something that could easily happen again. I mean, you mentioned you're a little kind to him, Tom. You mentioned in passing Minneapolis gave up on the idea of defunding the police. That I guess what you said, they saw a little surge in crime. Minneapolis saw so much crime. I think it was a 68% increase that their actual official vote to disband the cops just got rolled back. That made page two of the New York Times. That's going to happen all over the country if we don't say, okay, let's, let's prohibit racism in this sector, but instead we say let's get rid of the thin blue line. What you're going to see in the place of the thin blue line is 100,000 Kyle Rittenhouses because people aren't going to, just going to let their stores burn. Okay, okay uh, uh, Virgil, your thoughts? And I agree. I think, you know, we um, a lot of times, <laughs> again, you have – the, the, the narrative has been put out there, and everybody is, is getting this information from this source and from this source, and uh, you, it's just all over the place. And so, um, you know, when just like with, again, we, we talk about community policing, what is going into community policing and what are this, you know, Agencies doing to improve their relationships uh, across the city in, in this sector of the city, but I have to say this: I think the the one thing that we haven't talked about is what is the leadership within the police department doing? Who is the face and the voice of these agencies? How are the police chiefs out here and those people who are serving in their command staff really doing? Uh, a job to really build a relationship. So as you talk about in New York, um, you know, there's a lot of good uh, chiefs who are running their boroughs or their, so they have a connection with that community. And so they're able to really uh, control the things that's going on. But if you've got uh, a a sector of a city that's not being uh, managed right, then you're going to see these uh, rising crimes. So, Again, there are so many things that, that factor into that, but one of the most important things, Tom, and to your listeners, is the fact is what is the police chief doing and how is he relaying that message to those individuals that, that's in his command staff that are really boots on the ground that's really doing things, and how is that police chief boots on the ground in those communities? Okay. Uh, Maury, we got a few no, absolutely. Left, but- Sure. Uh, you know, you talk about that thin blue line, and, uh, you know, if anyone didn't think it was real, uh, they should know it by now. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter with their agenda, you know, defund, you know, the police, abolish prisons. Uh, you even have, you know, Kamala Harris at the NAACP convention saying how brilliant they are. You know, you know uh, if anyone wants to know what life is like without the police, you know, look at Seattle, look at Portland, you know, look at Chicago, look at New York. And, uh, you know, it is absolute anarchy, chaos, and, you know, you know, death. Um, you know, you know, Will talked about Chicago. Yeah, I was there during those years, you know, 91 when I started at 2011, uh, where there was real policing going on. You know, those homicides went down 54%. Almost, you know, 90% in the black community. So you're talking about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it matters Chicago Police Department. We saved thousands of lives. You know, same thing in New York. Uh, so, you know, you know, that's what's at stake here because the people that will suffer and are right now are suffering. You've already had 600 homicides in Chicago this year, 3,200 shot. Are you kidding me? 
almost entirely in the black community. You know, so that's why it's it's not a surprise that even in spite of all this, you know, negativity and propaganda against the police, in the most recent Gallup poll, 81% of, you know, black people want the same or more police in their neighborhoods. So, you know, a lot of this is just a bunch of elitist, you know, BS that does not filter down to real people. Um, you know, the police are important. Can we be improved? Absolutely. But it's absolutely essential. And, uh, you know, I, I think we need to turn things around and stand up. All right. Okay. Let's, uh, like I said, we got about four minutes left. So what I want to do, first of all, uh, Professor Riley, uh, how can people contact you, how they can follow you on Twitter, and what projects are you working on? Well, I'm pretty easy to contact. I'm Wilfred Riley, that's W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Um, on Twitter, if you want a hashtag, I'm at Will underscore Duh underscore Beast 630. Um, kind of, of lighthearted there, but uh, that is my Twitter handle. And I, I'm working on a couple things right now. Maury and I have actually discussed writing a book on the kind of that combined legal police perspective. How do you actually improve policing as opposed to BSing about it, doing nothing. Uh, I'm also writing a book about the flexibility of identity. Uh, so we now have people going beyond kind of the trans idea and saying, for example, I am other Ken. I believe I'm a non-human creature. So what, what does it mean to be something? I'm getting philosophical. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. More real quick. Yeah, more All right. Real yeah. Real, well, real quick. Uh, I'll make it real quick because I don't have Twitter or Facebook. I guess I'm going to have to uh, get with it here. And uh, I haven't been on Virgil's radio show, so. <laughs> well, we're going to get to work on that too. <laughs> but but uh, I'll give you an email. It's Mori R M A U R Y R two one two nine at gmail uh, dot com. And uh, can I take thirty cents to go on? Thirty seconds to go, go on. Ahead. Quick, quick rant here, Tom. You know, yeah, and, and here's the thing. Okay, we talked about all this stuff and all these people are hating the police and talking about, you know, even before we did one bit of reform, you know, if you wanted to cut, you know, down these, you know, uh, you know, killings uh, by 90 percent, you know, because if you look at it, you know, what's happening? Almost all these people were, were committing a crime resisting the police. So, you know, if, if all these, you know, haters would just go out and say, look, the police are a legitimate institution. Respect the police, comply with, comply with directions and commands, and don't fight or resist arrest. Then guess what? You would cut down these killings by 99%, you know, because it's that simple. Okay, now last thing, uh, we got uh, two minutes left, and I saved you for last, Virgil. So, hey, how people can get a hold of you. Uh, better yet, why don't you just briefly talk about the great show you have that's going to be following this show on Block Talk Radio. Yeah, so we have uh, the show called You and the Law that's on the Back to the News Radio Network that, that's getting ready to come on here in about another minute. So people can follow us on Facebook at You and the Law. Uh, go to our Facebook page and like it. Uh, you can, fo- you can uh, look me up on Facebook as well as, uh, you know, Chief Virgil Green. Uh, and so you can follow you and the law on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter. So uh, it's a real good show. We we have a a, a lot of good uh, uh, guests on the show. Just like we we have this afternoon, we're going to be talking about mental health and, and policing. So uh, for all your listeners, tune into uh, you and the law on the Back to the News Radio Network. All right, thank you. Well, I want to thank all of you very much. Uh, appreciate you guys taking your time. 
And this is Donaldson, Tom Donaldson. Donaldson Files, uh, tomorrow night, Justin Hart will be joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking very briefly about COVID. Uh, he's a nerd. He has a, he's a data guy on the COVID. And we may discuss um, tonight's debate. And we're going to kind of get into some uh, very interesting topics dealing with COVID as well. So this is Tom Donaldson saying good night. And, and then it'll live and Good night and have a good evening. Hey, we want to welcome everyone to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we're glad that you have uh, taken the time out to listen to us uh, today. And uh, as we we have a very uh, interesting um, uh, show today, and we have a, a guest that's going to be joining us uh, uh, after our first break. And so I am one of the hosts of the show uh, and I am Chief Green, and the other main co-host of the show goes by the name of Chief Swag. How are you doing today? Well, it, it appears that Chief Swag has not uh, jumped online with us yet, but uh, um, he is not uh, with us right now. So looks like I'll be solo for a little while until he join join the show, but... Uh, uh, as again, I wanted to welcome all of our listeners to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, today, we're going to be uh, talking. We're going to have a guest come on, and she is going to be talking with us about uh, mental health and policing. Uh, it is definitely something that uh, uh, the conversation is needed, uh, especially after everybody uh, saw the video that was all over social media and on the news about what took place up in Rochester, New York, uh, several months ago, where uh, family members called police to uh, to help their family member out who was having a, a mental breakdown. Uh, and as a result of that, the officers came out, and uh, several days later, uh, he ended up dying from uh, his encounter with the police. So. Uh, this is a, a conversation that we definitely need to have and, and how law enforcement can change uh, with the way that they deal with individuals who are suffering from mental mental health illness. So um, there is a lot of news that uh, is going on and uh, a, a lot of things are taking place with law enforcement over the, the, this past week and since our, our show last week. But I think a lot of people are really uh, starting to see the the un uh, the unraveling of the things that are, that have taken place in Kentucky 
with uh, with this no-knock uh, search warrant uh, that led up to Breonna Taylor's death, how the attorney general is a lot of is under a lot of scrutiny, under a lot of uh, pressure by the community uh, to release uh, the transcripts of that grand jury uh, investigation and what all took place. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that we try to do on our show is definitely have an open and honest conversation with our listeners about uh, you and the law and, and to give you as citizens an informed uh, information about what your rights are when you're dealing with the police, even though we are uh, police officers, uh, police executives, that uh, we feel that uh, it is our uh, duty to, as black men, uh, as black fathers, to to have this conversation with uh, with our uh, with the people in our community, uh, because oftentimes you really need to know what your rights are when dealing with the police. Um, but at the same time, there there's that there's that fine line of of knowing what your rights are and how you uh, are going to approach uh, the officers, because you cannot win anything on the side of the highway, whether it be receiving a citation or where you're, that encounter, if that means that you got to go to court, let that uh, go to court and let it be uh, presented before a judge. So, um, but so many interesting things have taken place with uh, Brianna Taylor's uh, situation uh, since the uh, grand jury came back with their decision and, and how the attorney general has came out and, and, and basically said why certain officers, those other two officers were not charged, but one officer was charged with but basically shooting into another apartment. And so I know there's a lot of different uh, people who have their own opinions about uh, about what's going on, but uh, we, uh, a lot of the facts uh, should have came out uh, a lot sooner. I know, uh, you know, investigations do take time, but we also, uh, the public really needs to know uh, what's going on and there needs to be some transparency because, as you all know, our listeners know that this is something that took place uh, back in uh, March. And so here we are in September, late September, and uh, a lot of information is starting to come out about what took place back in March. So, um, and it's it's not just impacted what goes on in Louisville. It's what has impacted what goes on in so many other cities across our country where uh, there's other protesting going on and there that leads, unfortunately, to, to looting and rioting. Um, but as we've seen what took place in Kenosha, Wisconsin, what took place in, in Louisville, and what took place even as far back as Ferguson, and all these other uh, things that have taken place, um, it is spread throughout country where a massive amount of people come out and they are uh, protesting against the police brutality and the fact that uh, we policing police has not done a good job of controlling that information. And oftentimes that information is being held on too long. And when it comes time for the information to come out, now the public has less trust in 
what the information that the police are, are, are putting out. So uh, I'll say that we are uh, we are really we really need to do a lot better job of controlling uh, the narrative of information that's being put out in positive narrative and being transparent with, with, with our, with our citizens. So, um, Chief Humphrey, are you on the line with us? So I don't believe we've got, uh, Chief Humphrey, uh, is on, on the show with us yet, but, uh, he should join us uh, pretty shortly. And, uh, again, if you have, uh, if you'd like to uh, call into the show and uh, discuss uh, the topics that we're uh, going to be talking about, or if you've got something that you want to share with us, uh, the calling number to the show is 646-929-0130. That's 646-929-0130. And uh, we also want to remind our listeners that you can follow You and the Law on Facebook, that's uh and you can also follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook at you and the law. You can follow us on Instagram at you underscore and the law. And you can follow us on Twitter at you the law one. So um we've got so many outlets that you can follow us on and, and keep in touch with us. And so um we are uh we're gonna be coming up on a quick break here in a little bit, but as I shared with you before, we've got a, a special guest who's going to be joining us. Uh, she is a mental health uh, profession uh, in Oklahoma City, and she has a, a, a good background in, in dealing with uh, mental health uh, issues, uh, and she has a, a background in, in law enforcement. So, Chief, hey, Chief uh, Green. I'm looking. Chief Green. Yes, sir. Go go ahead. I, There's here, my man. man. I'm here. Uh, man, man, you know what is? It is so good to hear your voice, brother. I was going on. Bro. You know, not a whole lot. You know, I wish L.A. You know had that. You know, in the background, the clapping and the yay, yay, yay. Chief Humphrey is here. So, <laughs> but but well, hey, I apologize. Uh, man. Uh, you're all right. Well, hey, uh, we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and I'm gonna introduce you to our our guest today. But you're listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you've got a clogged up nose, simply stuffy. If you've got a snuffly nose, simply sassy. If the rest of you feel fine, but your nose is out of line, give your schnozzle what it means, simply stuffy. Simply stuffy. From the makers of Children's Tylenol, it has only the medicine your child needs to make a stuffy nose simply disappear. If you want to smell a rose, get the stuff out of your nose. If you take a silly smile, simply stuffy. Simply stuffy. Use as directed. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Again, we want to welcome everyone back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that the call-in number to the show is 646-929-0130. That's 646-929-0130. And uh, if you call into the show, if you got a comment or 
uh, just let the producer know. He'll uh, get you on air, and uh, you can uh, talk with us on air. But if you just want to listen to the show, feel free to listen to the show. But also we want to remind our listeners that you can uh, listen to the rebroadcast shows of You and the Law uh, Monday through Friday, and you can listen to the rebroadcast shows at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And that is at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that is at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. So without further ado, we want to welcome our guest to the show. Her name is uh, Serena. She is a uh, medical, uh, mental health medical profession in, uh, in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. Uh, Serena, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Very very good. Awesome. We can hear you. So I'm on. I am on. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Scenario O'Conger. I heard you uh, refer to me as Serena, so I just wanted to make sure I, I straighten that out a little bit first. <laughs> hey, hey, I had to hey. I had to let you straighten it out a little bit. <laughs> yes, I'm, yes, glad yes. Again. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yeah, it's an honor to be on. Um, I truly respect... Uh, both of you all and your work in law enforcement here in Oklahoma. So uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> We're glad to have you. And, uh, you know, we uh, we've, we actually used to work together some, some years ago, and you had to remind mm. me of that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so, but uh, I... Uh, you know, we we're connecting uh, today to talk about some yeah. some issues of mental health and and policing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah. Chief Humphrey, uh, she she's so we'll, we'll just let you in a, you know tell our listeners about you. How did you get into this profession and 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 the things that you're doing in Oklahoma City related to mental health illness? Okay, great, great, great. Well. Um, I got my start back in 2009. It's kind of let you know how how seasoned I am. But I, I began my post collegiate work with the Department of Human Services as a child welfare investigator. Right, so I, I got the opportunity to work closely with law enforcement uh, in terms of investigating allegations of abuse and neglect uh, that would take home amongst families and uh, developed a really good relationship working with Norman uh, Police Department and Moore Police Department uh, during that time, being able to ride along with them and to assist them along with them assisting us uh, to, to, again, identify and uh, identify and basically pretty much work through any issues that a family may be carrying. Um, again, I enjoyed my time with them. But it also kind of let me see the importance of counseling and mental health because in order to deal with allegations of abuse and neglect, there has to be some element of mental health uh, deficiency or illness that's taking place. So I also got a chance to work closely with counseling providers. So um, at that point, I decided to go back to school and earn my master's in counseling uh, through uh, Mid-America Christian University, and my first line of work was with community mental health. I did that for a number of years, working as a rehabilitation specialist and a therapist. Um, eventually, with that population, I got a chance to work closely with uh, the police again, 
but this time with severe mental illness such as schizophrenia and bipolar and things of that nature there. And it was a lot of times when working with the police, we got a chance to see um, the importance of having um, police officers trained effectively in identifying mental illness and best yet how to kind of keep it from escalating. Um, what we what I remember during that time is police officers, if they were not trained, you could basically tell the difference. If they're not changed, the likelihood of that particular individual uh, going to jail and jail becoming kind of a uh, a housing place for the mentally ill was, was kind of evident. For those police officers that were trained in de-escalation techniques, we were able to see the likelihood of, you know, family member taking, a uh, family member kind of stepping in, as well as transfer to a mental health agency such as Red Rock or uh, North Care. So that was a, a wonderful opportunity. After that, I went to work for the uh, Oklahoma Department of Mental Health as a um, suicide prevention uh, agent, and then I went to work for the Bureau of Prisons, the Department of Justice, uh, working with federally incarcerated inmates. Again, an opportunity to work with law enforcement. I, at that point, became a law enforcement officer, and uh, I did that for a number of years, and now I'm currently as a supervisor at Northcare. Went back to my community mental health uh, roots, and that's where I am today. Okay. So that's a little okay. bit about All my right. background. Okay. All right. Uh, Chief Humphrey, you have anything to, to? No, I think her reputation precedes her. Uh, you know, very, very uh, <laughs> reputable and impressive background. So no, I'm, I'm willing. I'm. Sitting here learning from waiting to learn from her. Yeah, oh, yeah. Goodness. Well, def, well, definitely. And, and so this is part six of of our series of of bridging the gap. And you know we're going to be talking about mental illness and uh, and policing and why we uh, must improve police response to to mental illness. And so I know you've got a background in dealing with. Uh, Officers with CIT training, and so yeah. we'll, we'll kind of talk we'll, we'll kind of talk about that briefly. But uh, Keith, you you've got anything to add to the conversation as far as how how you've dealt with uh, mental illness, uh, in, uh, officers' response to to the agencies that you have been at? Are you you talking about officers' internal? Issues with mental illness or no, external? no, no, not internal, but but how external. how uh, external how the officers respond to deal with individuals with mental health illness uh, and what yeah. type of training and, and the things that that you've had to maybe imp- maybe that wasn't there but you implemented to kind of enhance uh, the, the level of training. Well, yeah, man, I appreciate that. Yeah, so so. You know, every, every, pretty much every state requires a minimum requirement of uh, crisis intervention training for officers, whether that's eight hours or whatever. Uh, we, we teach that in the academy. We also teach it in in-service, but we also have about 50 officers. So about 10 to 15 percent of our officers have gone through the certification program uh, to be certified in um, crisis intervention. Uh, they're recognized. They wear the pins on their uniform. And so they're not they're not mental they're not mental health therapists or, or social workers, but they're able to recognize 
uh, more more effectively individuals who may be in crisis or about to go into crisis. And, and so we um, we're trying to get more officers trained uh, in that area because the more officers you have, the the, the I think the more positive response you will have in the community. But we also have mm-hmm. uh, a very good working relationship with our local hospital, University of Arkansas Medical Sciences facility, that they have a, um, I don't like, a mental health uh, board and mental health facility that we're able to take our the individuals to when they are in, in crisis. So, you know, one of the things I've, I've said before um, is that law enforcement is missing the partnership with social workers or licensed counselors. And so one of the things that we're working on here is um, trying to hire a full-time social worker uh, to uh, enhance or to improve our response to uh, our mental health community. And so uh, we we have a grant that we are getting ready to write a job description. And so this person that's selected will be able to build this program as be a community outreach program. And so uh, the, the plan is to have a have a social worker, and at some point add some of the CIT officers, so we'll have a team that can respond to the uh, to the needs of the community when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to homelessness, uh, which a lot of times we know a lot of our individuals who are homeless may suffer from some form of some form of mental illness. So those are some mm-hmm. of the things that we're doing here. Uh, I don't think you can ever have enough resources when it comes to um, our mental health uh, community. Yeah. Yeah. That's some good points. Hey, we've got to just kind of let you guys know, we've kind of got a little background noise uh, feedback. So let's just make sure that we've got our, um, uh, our uh, equipment uh, on and where we're in a area where we're not getting some feedback because the producer is getting some feedback and I'm kind of hearing some as well. So uh, just kind of make sure we're, uh, so that doesn't impact how the listeners are listening to the show. But, uh, but you know, one of the things that we talk about when it comes to mental health illness is the fact with how black women are involved with uh, uh, police officers in, in mental health. And, and so we talk about, you know, Keith, we talked about this on the show uh, before about Sandra Bland and, and a lot of other uh, black women who have encountered police officers that has led up to their death. And so I think this was a really good conversation to have with somebody who is has that background in mental health, who is a black woman who can really kind of uh, share uh, some insight into maybe how police, how police can really partner with the, the private sector and maybe take some of those those mental, uh, those calls that police officers are responding to and put those into the private sector where they're working with, uh, p- with the police instead of the police officers showing up themselves uh, and dealing with, uh, with people who are really having some serious breakdowns with some mental illness. Yes, I appreciate, again, you guys having me on. Um, the topic of black people in general in terms of um, our relationship with the police uh, and law enforcement officers in general has always been strained. And there's a, a history behind that um, that's kind of 
created that that divide, that that sense of untrust. Um, having training and skill set in this area, which uh, I would say would be best suited through cultural uh, education, cultural competency training, uh, would benefit law enforcement to kind of understand how to work with minorities in general, right, people of color in general, right, um, being able to understand that we as African Americans are very passionate in our responses. When we're happy, we're loud. When we're upset, we're loud. We're emotional uh, creatures. However, if you don't understand or you have no knowledge about working with people of different cultures, then you may perceive that as a threat when all that we're simply trying to do is actually get our point and our message across. And I've seen in various videos involving law enforcement where things have gone horribly wrong when the situation could have been prevented had maybe some understanding of why this person is responding the way that they are. And, again, and, and in order to kind of close that gap that we have uh, between the mistrust between law enforcement and uh, the community, then training really needs to take place. In order for training to take place, we need to have a um, some skilled professionals in order to do that. Um, it it kind of almost falls into this whole rabbit uh, hole of what to do, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? We, we have this yeah. great need for mental health professionals, but yet we don't have the funding available for it. And if we have the funding for it, then it's often not utilized in the areas that would promote better relationships between the people and the police officers or law enforcement. Okay. So, well, hey, uh, yeah. hold that thought right there. Hold that thought. We're going to take a, a quick break, and uh, you're listening to the You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Radio.com and at the podcast from 2 p.m. 
to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, you can also uh, uh, catch out the uh, rebroadcast shows at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or if you're interested in advertising on the Bachelor News Radio Network, uh, reach out to us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. That's labachelor40 at gmail.com. And uh, listen and stay informed uh, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. But we want to welcome our listeners back. Uh, we have a, a guest on the show today, and she is a mental health profession. And we are talking about mental health illness and law enforcement and how law enforcement is responding to uh, mental health illness, uh, especially after what we saw several months ago in um, Rochester where, uh, it, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, there was another death of an unarmed black man and how those police officers responded to assist this individual who was having a, a mental breakdown and the fact that the family, they were trying to get some help but they did not uh, expect what happened that resulted in the death of, of, of their family member. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that just kind of activates the general fear that community members have towards law enforcement. You know, you're already hesitant to call uh, in the first place uh, because of, you know, what has happened before or what you see on TV, and then you actually do make that call and you find yourself, you know, making news headlines. Uh, in order to do this, we really need to strategize and come up with an idea, plan of action to uh, include more training, to focus more on stabilization and de-escalation. Sorry, now I can't talk. De-escalation techniques um, for from law enforcement and dealing with the public. But if you had an idea of what to expect. You know, as dispatch and you're receiving a message that you're encountering a family or individual with mental illness and you had an idea of what symptoms to look out for, what kind of behavioral may be displayed, if being able to identify if perhaps substance use is in play. You know, having a, an idea and game set of how to approach this individual could result in saving lives. Um, and it goes back to what I was mentioning before, the importance of training. Personally, I'm required to have 3,000 hours of training before I can become a licensed professional counselor. Right? And that's just in the beginning. My training goes on, uh, which I'm required to have at least at minimum 20 hours worth of training uh, yearly. Uh, continued education is important in terms of, of a lot of things, but as a police officer, as law enforcement that is a necessity if you're working with the community, especially with mental illness being um, so dominant, so prevalent in our society today. Um, there is millions of people diagnosed with mental illness, whether that be depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And if we're not able to serve those individuals or if our only outlet is to approach an individual in a hostile uh, situation, then we're only creating more stigma. We're only creating more catastrophic um, uh, instances to take place, like what you just made mention involving the, the, the individual who lost his life following a police uh, uh, um, situation. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and one of the things is that you know when you talk about the training, we're we're talking about um, officers like here in Oklahoma. It may be only required to have maybe uh, less than four hours of mental health training a year, and so you know, Chief Humphrey, that's one of the things is that uh, you know some agencies they may do their they may do more training. But the state only requires, I, I believe, an officer that only have two hours of mental health training. Well, that's, yeah, that's annually. Yeah, once they go to the academy, I think in the academy it may be a little bit more. But, yeah, annually there is only a requirement in Oklahoma to have two hours annually. And so it's, it's, it's upon the, it's, um, the chief has a responsibility to say I want to do more. But the problem is, is the, the funding. Um, mm-hmm. Could be the problem. The staffing could be the problem because if you're talking about a department that may have four or five officers, you know how do you how do you how do you send them all to get training? Um, and so you know those are the things. It's not an excuse, but because what you the things that you need, you find a way for them to get those things. Right. And so it's all about right. it's all about what's important, and I think we're encountering more and more individuals uh, with mental illness, and and we're not talking about the depression, uh, we're not talking about depression or anxiety. We're talking about the bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, multiple personalities. We're dealing with those individuals, PTSD. I mean, those are the uh-huh. uh, type of, of individuals who are suffering from these um, these diseases because that's what I believe mental illness is. It's a disease um, that we're encountering, and so we have to. We should be getting more training because we are because this is just what we're doing. We're the first uh, line of defense or the first line of offense when it comes to responding to uh, individuals that do suffer from mental illness. So it puts us in a bad position. So if we know that's going to happen, we have to be trained uh, well. Right. Well, and, you know, one of the things that just recently occurred in the last couple of days is where uh, the former campaign manager, somebody who was involved in the Trump, uh, his previous political uh, campaign took place in Florida where – Yes, campaign manager, who uh, who was having a, a mental health crisis, and his wife called the police. And to see how the officer showed up, almost kind of like in in riot gear, and they they took him down. Obviously, they had been told that there was weapons that he had in the house, but just to see the officers in the type of riot gear that they had on, or the type of uh, it was kind of surprising, Keith. I don't know if you you saw that, but it was really surprising how they responded to that situation. Uh, I mean, they they took him down, but a lot of people have been asking the question: What if that was a black person? And I, I'm gonna ask you this question to our guest: Do we do we sometimes get caught up into the racial? Uh, make up if this was a black person or a white person, how would things be treated differently with with law enforcement? I think the concern is valid um, because we've seen various instances where there is a difference 
made, uh, not, it's not only just seen, but it, research has also proven that there's been differences made uh, with people of color versus white people, right? So, again, this kind of adds on to our general fear. Even if the bias is implicit or explicit, it's still a bias that we have to learn how to check uh, within ourselves um, as law enforcement officers, right, as professionals in general. Um, you learn that through training. <laughs> That's probably going to be my first line of defense in a lot of my answers. But you learn that through competency, cultural competency training in which you're able to identify your biases, right, which may not be known or identifiable easily. Um, but through training, you're, you're able to see that and learn how to, to best handle it. But I think that a lot of our police officers uh, are, are ill-equipped, do not have the specific training necessary in order to, to kind of de-escalate the fears of the African-American community or minorities in general. Okay. Hey, we want to remind our listeners that you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and the, the calling number to the show is 646-929-0130. That's 646-929-0130. And, uh, and we're talking today with our guests about uh, mental health illness and, uh, and police response to mental health illness. And so we – this is a conversation that uh, – that, has hasn't got a lot of attention, especially with the uh, with the killing of unarmed black men and black women who have suffered from mental uh, mental uh, health breakdowns. And so, when we talk about the training, that's really important because again, the more training you have, the better you can respond to to that person to, to for you to be able to get that person the right help that they need. Mm-hmm. And it's a community and, effort. Again, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. The I was going to say it's definitely a community effort. Um, identification for the officers to know exactly what they're going into, identifying symptoms associated with those disorders are helpful. We also need to be aware of the climate that we're currently in, right? Being in a pandemic uh, has brought towards a lot of um, a lot of depression, believe it or not, depression that has been acerbated. And if you're not receiving treatment, if you're not knowledgeable of what's going on with you, you may too be faced with an emergency situation which may involve uh, law enforcement, right? So I encourage people to let go of the stigma that may be associated with mental illness and to seek treatment. If you are, as an individual, are dealing with uh, certain mental illness signs, then being able to to get treatment can reduce uh, the likelihood of you even having to to make a call to police, right? Um, or, or making sure that your family knows what's going on with you. Having a support system or an outlet to go speak with um, can also help reduce some of the extreme measures of having your family contact police, right? Um, there's resources, and one of the things that I'm heavily associated with and founder of is Oklahoma Clinicians of Color. It's something that I uh, put out back in 2008 because I wanted to identify the mental health professionals 
uh, of color in our communities and connect them with communities um, that are in need of therapy services and have been successful and able to do so. But it also showed the need for that, the need for people to understand what's going on with them mentally and to feel comfortable in talking about that, which reduces the stigma. Um, I am not here to bash law enforcement at all. Again, I definitely respect what law enforcement does. What I am advocating for is more education, more training. And just like uh, Chief Humphreys had mentioned, if there is something that you want, you will do whatever steps necessary to ensure that that happens. That means hiring more mental health professionals. I would love to be able to see a mental health professional be able to go alongside with a police officer and, and during times of distress whenever you get a mental health call. We also need to change our view of mental illness in general. So on that note, I will slow down uh, because this okay. is a subject I'm very passionate in. <laughs> All right. So go ahead. Well, we well hey. Okay. Well, hey, we're going to take a, a, a break, and uh, you're listening to You on the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. Dermarest, the psoriasis solution, asks, What's complete freedom? For me, it's an open road with the top down. It's my bare arms getting warmed by the sun. It's my bare arms without a trace of psoriasis. Complete Freedom, brought to you by the complete relief of Dermarest psoriasis. Unlike brands which only relieve itching and inflammation, Dermarest psoriasis also removes the embarrassing scales, allowing healthy skin to grow. Healthy skin? That's complete freedom. Dermarest, the psoriasis solution. Special guest six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. The number to get in touch with us if you have a question for the guests, and uh, of course uh, the Chiefs the brothers here on you on the law. You can hit us up at six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. The number. Uh, don't forget to follow them on Facebook. And uh, if you missed this live broadcast, you can go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Uh, every 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and catch the rebroadcast of this show. You can hear their guests and hear uh, the insight that they have. A question came in to you both and your guests. Uh, how do you decipher? How does law enforcement and how does uh, one in your profession, ma'am, um, uh, come together and collaborate on what is mental illness and some of these issues certainly wasn't Brianna Stewart she was in her bed got killed uh, but what would be deemed the mental illness and, and what about the triggers uh, the person said that the actual triggers uh, that may um, happen with some of these cops that are maybe not trained or just 
um, uh, Trigger Happy. I do want to mention, too, if your guest can, uh, I think she's listening on two devices, if she can mute one because we're getting some feedback. Um, and that will be awesome. Uh, and, and take it away, guys. Appreciate it. All right. And, and, and thanks uh, to our listeners for that question. And uh, it's a good question. And, and I think, you know, uh, Chief Humphreys, you know, one of the things is that we need to really do is how we bridge the gap of, of training our police officers with those individuals in mental, in the mental health profession. Uh, as I guess stated, you know, having those mental health professions uh, work alongside our police officers are, are really important uh, because I think, you know, some agencies have taken the approach to where they've kind of taken their police officers out of that uh, responding to those calls and those calls are being now dealt with strictly individuals who are in that uh, profession who can really determine what is the level of care that that person really needs. Yeah, I would agree. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Steve Humphrey? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I agree. Well, yeah. And, and so, and, and we're asking this question, you know, with the listeners pose that question, especially when it comes to people in, especially in the minority community, to where oftentimes they don't feel that the police officers are really listening to what's going on with them. It, it's more of... I'm here to enforce something. I'm here to either take you to jail or you need to go do something besides what you're doing now. So as a, as a medical health profession, what can law enforcement do better to really uh, work with our, our mental health profession? Hmm. Well, they, what they can do is, hire more mental health professional staff. I think that the role of police officers, law enforcement, is so in-depth. Uh, you, they are counselors. They are priests. They are uh, um, pastors at times. They are uh, yeah. mitigators. They, they do so much. And to expect a law enforcement officer to be a licensed professional counselor or a social worker is asking way too much. Um, I think that there definitely needs to be a change uh, with how law, enfor- law enforcement officers engage with that. The only way you can do that is through more training, through more education. Um, I know with CIT, you know, they, they meet for those 40 hours, but it's still not enough. It needs to be continual education um, in which they're, they're meeting um, for more than 40 hours are two hours uh, per year. Yeah, and, and, and you're right about that because one of the things is that so many states, not just Oklahoma or Arkansas or any other state, they have states have decreased their funding to mental health uh, resources. They've cut beds. They've cut a lot of different services that were available 10 years ago are not available now. And so Mm-hmm. You made the comment that we're asking our officers to do a lot more than what 
they should be doing. Uh, and Chief Humphreys, what what would you add to that to where uh, how can what can agencies do better to really uh, make sure that individuals are getting the proper care uh, that they're that they're needing and not end up in a in in, in jail before they get to some uh, treatment center. Well, you know, we, we mentioned it. I, I, there's a lot of pilot programs that have actually evolved into full-time programs where they are, where police departments are actually, what we're trying to do here in Little Rock, where police departments are actually partnering with licensed uh, counselors and actually going out in the field. You know, one of the things that we could we could actually do tech through technology is that we could provide our officers with uh, technology, whether it's iPhones, iPads or whatever, and when they come across a situation like that where they could have immediately FaceTime or Skype with a mental health professional who could analyze somebody, you know, sit there and 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 determine, you know, is this something that is uh, this person's an immediate threat to themselves, or does we do we need to follow up with this person's um, um, care mm-hmm. provider? Now, now, what happens with us, you know, with law enforcement is that if we go to a situation and we don't have the, the authority to take someone to a facility for their safety, I guarantee you about 95% of the time there's no follow-up. So we're not following up with that individual. We're not following up with that individual's doctors. We're not following up with those individual's families. And so I think that's something that we could do better, uh, figure out ways to not just once we decide off on those individuals um, that we just forget about them and move to the next. And so that's one of the things, that's what we have. Uh, that's why that's how the term repeat, repeat offenders. And I don't like to use that because mental illness is not a, is not a criminal. So that's how we, you know, continue to deal with the same individuals over and over again, because, we, we don't have any type of follow-up, no type of formal follow-up to make sure that they're getting the assistance that they need. Hmm. Great point. Yeah, we just, you know, we go out and we make the contact, we do the, we evaluate. Um, yes, we could take this person for emergency detention. Um well, things we're not doing. A lot of officers don't know in different states. You can actually petition a, a court uh, to uh, have a person. Um, uh, I don't like to say placed in a facility, but get a person the help that they need. Um, mm-hmm. If they don't want to voluntarily do it, where it might be involuntarily, but at least they're getting the help. Uh, we don't we don't follow the rules. A lot of the times, the officers don't know what resources are available. So that's how you have to have partnerships with different organizations, with 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 uh, persons like yourself or, or or the local mental health um, organization and things like that. That's why we need mm-hmm. to have those those, those partnerships. Yeah, I'm definitely in agreement. Oh. I'm I'm definitely in agreement with. Uh, with you said, Chief Humphreys, um, it is almost like a warm handoff um, once CIT or the officer gets involved, um, a mental health professional is contacted, and from that point on, they're 
they're caged with the responsibilities and assuring uh, the client's safety. But in order to strengthen relationships between the community, uh, it would be great if there was someone from the uh, police officers or or um, some representative from the police force to be able to call and contact with the family just to see how things are going, if there's some, some resources that are, are needed. So I, I like that idea. Hey, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to You Are the Law on the Back of the News Radio Network, and the calling number to the show is uh, 646-929-0130. And uh, we've got a special guest on the show that is talking with us about mental health illness and in ways that law enforcement can in, improve on uh, how they respond to mental health illness. And I want to ask you this question. In your world, if things could be perfect, uh, what would be your uh, ideal of how police officers can be better trained on mental health illness? Hmm. In an ideal setting, I would have uh, law enforcement officers uh, trained monthly in some element of mental health, whether that be learning more about uh, perverse, uh, pervasive mental health disorders such as schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, uh, the different personality disorders, learn more about alcoholism, substance use, right, and, and their impacts of not just the individual but also the family. So definitely a monthly trains on that by mental health professionals that are licensed, uh, whether that be psychologists or uh, a professional counselor or a social worker, and then being able to have, as we discussed earlier, a uh, in dealing with uh, mental health cases, mental health calls, being able to have a, a therapist uh, right alongside with them um, in addition to also learning de-escalation, I can never say that word, the de-escalation, de-escalation. techniques. Yes, I can't say that word today for some reason. <laughs> uh, but also hey, being right. able to learn those techniques instead of aiming at getting your gun, learning how to talk down an individual, right, who's going through psychosis, being able to, to identify that and respond effectively. So... That would be my idea, and more funding. Again, I still don't believe that it's all the officers, uh, end all, be all, that the officer is knowledgeable and everything. If, if there was enough funding in place, more mental health agencies available, then there would be less uh, need to even have the police officers involved, in my opinion. You know, but if, I, if I may say so, training. You know, I may say so. You know, I think I think one thing that we could do, uh, even those departments that may not have the resources, uh, there's always some college, uh, some university, second higher education facility. Not even if it's not in that immediate city, that's in the close proximity, that would be willing to to work with uh, law enforcement to develop those type of programs. And I think those are the type of things that we're going to have to start doing as um, even, you know, cause, because not having the funding is not going to work as an excuse anymore. So, right. you know, we're not going to ever have the budget that we've had in the past. So we've, we've got to be creative, and there's so many partnerships out there. And there's also still grants, funding out there, too. But um, I still believe uh, there is a... 
you know, if there's a need for this, I think people believe that it's not the police, it's not the job of a law enforcement officer to respond to those type of calls. Well, unfortunately, that's going to continue to happen. And so we have to be prepared. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, we can't make excuses and say we can't afford it uh, because we're going to have to do it. Because, because you, you all know this, that, that, that one incident uh, in which someone loses their life or they're injured, uh, that lawsuit, the settlement of that lawsuit could have been prevented if you if you had put some of that money or a small percentage of that money into training. Right. Not just training, but also therapy in general. Again, with the Absolutely. mass amount of uh, cases that law enforcement deals with, being able to have counselors for them, uh, that would be ideal, right, with them to meet with a mental health professional. Uh, so they can identify their triggers again um, and and uh, be better suited to work with the community. And you make a good point because one of the things is the fact that what we often overlook is the fact that officers are dealing with some of the same issues that the people that they're responding to are dealing with. And so the police officers are able to uh, you know they're working through their issues, but they're also trying to solve other people's issues, and so right. that's something that really has to be addressed as well and screened as far as how officers are uh, dealing with people with mental health illness. Uh, because oftentimes there's so much going on in the police officers in a in a shift that. They don't take the time to stop and, and listen to people. And as I shared with you before, when I was a police chief in, 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 in another community, had a large population of, of mental health facilities. And oftentimes these people just wanted somebody to talk to, somebody to listen to, to what they had to say. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, this is a, we're coming up on about two minutes before the end of the show, but this has been a, a, a great conversation that uh, we've had with you and our listeners about police response to, to mental health illness and ways that we can improve on how do we deal with people suffering from mental health crises. But why don't you uh, just kind of, before we end the show, uh, you know, tell people how they can get in touch with you, and uh, and some, because I know you serve uh, on on a board that uh, that deals with mental mental illness. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I am board of director for NAMI Oklahoma National Alliance of Mental Illness. Um, NAMI does a phenomenal job working with crisis intervention. Uh, teams, police officers, as well as communities to learn more about mental illness and mental wellness. Um, One way that I can be reached is actually through Facebook. Again, um, I am founder of Oklahoma Clinicians of Color. If you're interested in learning more about minority mental health, uh, learning more to ways to be culturally competent, I encourage you to type us in the search bar as Oklahoma Clinicians of Color. to try identify us, and we also okay. assist with mental health resources. Okay. 
Well, hey, we want to thank you for coming on the show, talking with us about mental health illness and police response to it. And Chief Swag, you got anything to add before we uh, sign off today, sir? I just want to thank our guests for coming on today and uh, and just tell the listeners thank you all for for your support. Okay. Yeah, thank well, hey, you. Hey, you're more than welcome, and we definitely uh, hopefully get you back on the show again to talk more about mental health, illness, and policing. But we want to thank our listeners for tuning in to You and Alone, the Back of the News Radio Network, and we will see you uh, next week. Thank you for listening. You're listening to You and Alone, the Back of the News Radio.